You may be seated, and as you're doing that, please open up your Bibles to Ephesians, and Cheryl will share the reading. I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We'll read uh, verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, good morning again. We have a lot to cover, so let's pray. It's a long passage. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, your word and the time so far in worship. We pray that you would open our hearts to apply, our minds to understand, and our, our spirits to respond to you, Lord. Help us as we, we study this passage together. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. That's one of my favorite sayings about leadership. I don't know where I came across it, somewhere I, I, some conference I was at probably. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every single time. And the idea behind that saying is that if you don't know what the goal is, well, you're, you're probably not going to hit the goal. You might hit something, but you're not going to hit the goal that you should be hitting at. It's like shooting arrows with your eyes closed, right? Uh, it looks like there's a lot going on. You look very busy if you're shooting arrows with your eyes closed, but... Um, but you're not going to hit the target 50 feet away if you're, if you're trying to do it with your eyes closed. And I like that little saying. I like it when you think about kind of leadership, but I like it in terms of today's passage because I think it applies to what we, we need to talk about today. Uh, last week, we kind of introduced part two of our series through Ephesians, and I explained how Ephesians breaks very nicely, if you want to outline the book in terms of studying it, breaks very nicely into two big sections. And uh, the first section is the first three chapters, chapters one, two, and three, and those chapters are more theological. I mean, it's not like the rest of it isn't, but those chapters are really focused on what God has done for us in Christ, 
And so there's all of this emphasis in chapters 1, 2, and 3 on our salvation, and justification by faith is in there, and the blessings we have in Christ, and a whole bunch of wonderful theology about, about our salvation. The second half of the book, which is what we're tackling this fall, the second half of the book focuses on how we therefore need to live because of all that theology. So, so you got chapters 1, 2, and 3, here's what God's done for us, chapters 4, 5, and 6, therefore here's how we need to live. And you see that transition very clearly at the beginning of chapter 4. It was one of the verses we looked at last week. I therefore, this is chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, or therefore I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So therefore, because of all that stuff that came before, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, Paul writes. And I made the case last week that I think that phrase, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, actually controls the rest of the book. So we're going to kind of keep coming back to that phrase most of the time to to realize that's what the book is about. God's done this, therefore live this way chapters 4, 5, and 6. And so last week we talked about unity. That was the first answer to the question, you know, how therefore should we live because of what Jesus has done for us? Answer number one, verses 2 through 6, live in unity with one another as followers of Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus need to stick together. That's what we talked about last week. Now in this next section, the passage we look at today, Paul directs our attention to another topic related to, to, to unity. In fact, we'll come back to unity today. But he directs our attention now to spiritual maturity. That's really the focus of verses 7 through 16. Spiritual maturity. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, what else does a manner worthy of our calling look like? Well, it looks like growing in spiritual maturity. We don't just kind of accept Jesus and stall out. We keep growing in spiritual maturity. Now, maturity is one of those concepts that can be a little hard to pin down sometimes. Um, Sometimes it has to do with age. I think this is kind of where we get stuck a little bit. Maturity, you know, when we think about maturity, maturity has to do with age. Uh, But it's not always correlated, right? It's not always the case that just because somebody's old, that person's mature. Uh, I've known 20-year-olds I would trust with my life. And I've known 60-year-olds who act like children. Uh, Maybe you've had that experience too. And so it's not a direct, you know, just because you've lived a long time, you're mature. And and that's true spiritually. Just because you've been a Christian a long time doesn't automatically make a person mature. And and that, I think, really is, is the need behind this morning's passage, this reality that just doing something a long time doesn't, isn't enough to make us mature. Uh, we actually have to go after it. Uh, spiritual maturity is not automatic. Uh, it's, it, it's something we have to aim for. Right? Back to the idea of a target. We have to, to aim at growing in maturity. And if we're going to aim at it, we've got to know what it is. Right? If, you, if, if you think in terms of shooting an arrow, you've got to know what the target is. You've got to know that it's the target. Okay, those circles mean I'm supposed to be aiming for it. Uh, that kind of a thing. And, and so it is with, with what we're talking about in terms of spiritual maturity. And so this passage is a little bit of a longer one, and so uh, there's kind of a lot of material here, but I think the Lord will apply what what we need. Uh, As we look at these verses this morning, the theme that ties it all together is maturity, and I want to look at maturity from two angles. I want to talk about the process, 
So God has a process that is his intention. So you say, God, how do you want to cause your people, your church, to grow in spiritual maturity? Well, there's a process he's ordained, and it's in this morning's passage. So we're going to talk about the process of spiritual maturity, and then we're going to talk about the product of spiritual maturity. And and the idea there is that that's what we're aiming at. So if I ask the question, or any of us asks the question, how do I know I'm growing in maturity? Well, there's actually some some stuff in this passage that'll help us answer that question. So we have the process, how we get there, and the product, what we're actually trying to get to, what what we're aiming at. So that's what we're looking at. So let's start with the process. And so this is how God nurtures our growth. And and the process actually has three steps in, in this morning's passage. There are three key steps in God's process for causing his people to grow spiritually, and each one's carried out by a different person, or a different person or a different group. So so let's look at them in turn. So if you're an outline follower, if you like to take notes in the bulletin, there's three things here. And so the step one, step one in God's process, is done by Jesus. It involves Jesus, all right? And let me read the verse first. Uh, Verse seven, it says, but grace was given, and the words are similar in, in, in Greek, so it's, uh, but, but grace was graced, <laughs> grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift or Christ's grace. All right, so I'm just going to stop there. What does Jesus do? Jesus gives gifts. That's his, his role in this passage in the, in the maturity process. He gives gifts. Uh, the NIV, New International Version, says that uh, his, he apportions his grace. Grace is given as Christ apportions it. And what that does, and you see it here in the ESV too, but what that does is that really puts the emphasis on Jesus is the one who's distributing gifts in this passage. And he's distributing them to his people. He's distributing them to the church. But the point is, he's the one who's in charge. He's driving this process. It's his process. So he distributes gifts to each one, it says in verse 7. So there's no um, exceptions. There's nobody who's not gifted. We all have a gift. Um, we talk in terms of the broader doctrine or uh, yeah, doctrine of, of spiritual gifts. Um, this passage is more narrow on spiritual gifts, but when we talk about spiritual gifts, every single one of us watching online, listening right now in the room, we all have one or more spiritual gifts that God has given us. And actually, if I could just take a moment to go back to last week's topic. So last week we talked about unity. This verse 7 helps us understand unity a little better. Uh, Because if you think, just think back for a moment to what we talked about last week in terms of of, uh, what we have in common. So remember verse 4 says we are the same body. And verse 5 says we have the same Lord and and the same faith. And verse 6 says we're united under the same God. And so there's this big emphasis on how we all these things we have in common, the sameness. But now you get to verse 7, and we learn that same, uh, having having the same God, the same faith, the same Lord, doesn't mean that we are the same. And you actually, what you see now is diversity. So you get unity with diversity here in this part. And so Jesus gives to each one. So the gifts that you have aren't the gifts that you have, that you have, that I have. God, he gives each one according to how he wants to do it. So that's that idea there with verse 7. So when you hear about, uh, when we talk about unity in the church, we're not saying that we're all the same or that we all are, you know, that we're carbon copies of each other. That's not what the Bible is teaching. So Jesus gives gifts, okay? So back to that idea. Jesus gives gifts. Now, Paul wants to establish this, so he quotes a psalm. 
And uh, it actually makes the passage longer, but he's, he's the writer here, so he gets to do it. Uh, what verse 8 does is he gives us the scriptural rationale for why he says God has given gifts through Jesus. And so verse 8, he quotes Psalm 68. He says, therefore it says, it is Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts. And so Psalm 68 is a good one. It's, uh, what he's quoting is Psalm 68, verse 18. And that entire psalm uh, portrays Yahweh, the Lord, as the conquering king. He's the king who conquers his enemies on behalf of his people. And then in that psalm, he actually he, he takes care of them. He, he, um, he distributes, actually he receives gifts in Psalm 68. But there's this idea that he's sharing his victory with his people. And so uh, Paul grabs that psalm and he says, that was talking about Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who fulfills that. Jesus is the great king who's ascended Mount Zion, and he's conquered his enemies, and now he's going to share the spoils of his victory with his followers. And, and so that's this picture here. Except with Jesus, his, enemy, his enemies that he's conquered, it was way bigger than the Ammonites and the Moabites and all those ites people. Jesus has conquered the devil and sin and death. And so those are the captives. When you read that, that's how I would interpret it. Verse 8, uh, he led a host of captives. The captives are his enemies that he's conquered, sin and death, the devil. Uh, and now what is he doing? He's, he's going to share the spoils. That's the picture here. Uh, we don't usually think this way, so you've got to kind of enter into the biblical mindset. But Jesus conquers his enemies, and then he gets all the loot, and he's going to pass it out to you and me. That's, that's the picture here. He's the great king who does that. And then he actually has to explain, and this is verses 9 and 10. And your Bible probably puts these in parentheses. Most translations do, because what verses 9 and 10 do is he's basically explaining what he means. And let me just read it, and I'm, I'm going to spend a tiny bit of time on this because there's actually a, a miss, a, a, a false doctrine, basically, that a misinterpretation here leads to. So verse 9, in saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That's verses 9 and 10. Now, uh, some people, and maybe you've run into this, some people think that verse means Jesus went to hell. Some people will use that verse to argue that Jesus went to hell after he died. And so he dies on the cross, and then he descends into the lower parts of the earth. He goes to hell. And the re, you know, there's different thoughts on why they would say that. One thought would be that he goes down there to kind of rescue the Old Testament saints, and maybe they've, they've kind of been stored there. Uh, the Bible never says that, but there was this Jewish tradition that, that they went there. Uh, and so one thought was that he would go to hell to kind of lead those captives out, and that would, that's how they would interpret verse 8 then. Um, the, and the other thought is, is, some will argue, that he actually needed to go to hell to finish the suffering. And so he suffers on the cross for our sins, and since people go to hell because of their sin, Jesus then goes to hell to suffer there for a short time. Uh, some have interpreted it that way. Um, I do not agree with that interpretation. I would not recommend that to you. Um, I do not think the Bible teaches Jesus went to hell after he died. So if you've ever run into that, or actually even one of the creeds that gets said sometimes seems to imply that. Um, we would not teach that here. Jesus did not go to hell. Um, like I say, the Bible doesn't teach this idea that Old Testament saints were kept there. It really doesn't teach that. And, and as far as the suffering goes, uh, what does Jesus say on the cross? He says, it's finished. That's right. He doesn't say it's almost finished. 
He says it's finished. And so the, his suffering is, is accomplished and done on the cross. So I, we don't think he needed to go to hell. So what's verses 9 and 10 about? What are those two verses saying? Well, what, really, it's just the incarnation. It's Paul's describing to you the incarnation. And so when it says he descended, it's not that he descended from earth to hell. It's that he descended from heaven to earth which is why the, the ESV is right to kind of translate this the way they do. He descended to the lower regions, that is, he descended to the earth. And so Jesus left the glories of heaven, he came down to earth, he lived a perfect life, he trained his disciples, uh, he died on the cross, he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and that's what you got in verse 10. So he descended, incarnation, he ascended, he returned to heaven where we now wait for him to come back, right? So that's what's going on in verses 9 and 10. And like I say, it's a little bit of a sidetrack, but there's this important thing that people sometimes misunderstand, so I thought we would take the time to describe it. All of that's to say, what I want you to take away from verses 7 through 10 is this picture of Jesus, because that's really, I think, what Paul wants us to see. He wants us to understand Jesus is in command here. He's this conquering king, and he's defeated his enemies, he's conquered the devil, he's destroyed sin, he's destroyed death, and now he turns to his people, his followers, and he says, here, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to distribute the spoils, right? If it was an ancient king, it would be, it would be uh, you know, gold and silver and whatever, and food and whatever they captured, but Jesus isn't going to give us gold and silver. He says, I'm going to give you exactly what you need to, what you need to, to get where I want you to go, which is to grow in your faith. And so he's going to distribute gifts to his people. That all brings us to step two. So, so first, step one, Jesus gives gifts. Step two, uh, leaders equip believers. Leaders equip believers. That's, that's where Paul goes next. So, verse 11. And the thing you got to know about verse 11 is verse 11 reaches back to verse 7. So Paul does all this explaining, but... Um, you, in fact, I'm going to do it that way. But great, I'm going to read from verse 7 and then jump to 11. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Oh, well, what did he give, Paul? Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. Let me just stop there for now. So, why, Jesus gives gifts. And if we looked at Romans and we looked at 1 Corinthians, and there's also a passage in 1 Peter that talk about spiritual gifts, broadly speaking, all of those would be under this category, right? So when Jesus gives gifts, he gives the gift of administration and the gift of tongues and the gifts of healing and the gift of generosity. There's all kinds of gifts the New Testament talks about. But here in Ephesians 4, he zeroes in on one kind of gift, and it's leadership. It's spiritual leaders. That's the one he talks about here in verse 11. And so he gave gifts, verse 7. What gifts, Paul? Verse 11, these, these four, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the preachers, teachers. The reason he gives them is to equip, equip believers. That's their job in this maturity process. Uh, verse, 12, uh, verse 12, Jesus gives leaders so they will equip believers. And he's got these four, let me just spend a little bit of time on them. He's got these four uh, leadership roles that we see here in Ephesians 4. I, I want to stress these are not the only ones. Uh, it would be a mistake to come away from this passage and think there's only four kind of leaders in the church. Uh, there's lots of other passages that talk about deacons, for example, or they talk about elders. You see women occupying different leadership roles in, in different ways in, in the New Testament. So you have these other kinds of leaders, but here he's going to focus on these four 
I think because these four are the prominent ones in the maturity aspect, which is what his focus is here on this passage. And, and, they, and also what they have in common is they all do a ministry of the word, and the word is how we grow in maturity. So, so don't think these are the only four types of leaders, but these are the four in this passage. And so you've got apostles. We, you know, the apostles were the ones Jesus appointed to, to launch the church. Uh, they're almost like missionaries. Really, they were the first generation of missionaries. They also wrote the scriptures. Uh, you have the prophets, this kind of New Testament gift of prophet, where they, were, they would proclaim words from the Lord, not the word, but the words from the Lord to, to God's people. It's also kind of the preaching gift, really. The, the gift of prophets sometimes bleeds over to that. Uh, evangelists, we know what they do, right? Will Graham is an evangelist. He's going to preach the gospel to people who haven't heard it yet. Um, there's, there's that aspect. And then there's this fourth one, and, and I do think it, the pastor-teacher, the way it is given to us grammatically, it's a single office, not two separate ones. And so it's, it's shepherds who shepherd by teaching. It's that, that's the idea there. So you have this pastor-teacher gift. Uh, and, and what you see is that each one has a different function. They all have these different jobs they do. I just kind of sketched that out. But look what they have in common. It's verse 12, that first part of verse 12. They all equip God's people, right? It's right there. They all equip God's people. They equip the saints. That's who the saints are, by the way. Uh, saints, the word saint just means holy one. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in him to deal with your sin rather than trying to deal with it in your own works righteousness, you're a saint. <laughs> you're a saint according to the scriptures. And so uh, you're the one that these leaders are supposed to be equipping. Let me talk a little bit about the word equip, uh, just so we know what that word's thinking about. It just means to prepare. To, to equip someone means to prepare them to do what they're supposed to do. That, that's what that word would mean. And I always think of a coach. I've, I think I've talked on this passage before. I've probably had to. Um, whenever I think about this passage, I think about those four offices. They're, they're really like coaches. And, and when you think of a coach, you know, we, we're all familiar with kind of the idea of a coach, even if we're not really athletes or whatever. Um, when, with a coach, a lot of times we think about the coach on game day, right? And so he's there or she's there, you know, with volleyball or whatever. Um, and kind of calling the plays and, you know, implementing the strategy. We see the coach do that. But most of a coach's work happens before, right? It's that preparation before game day ever comes along, training them and their skills and, and how to you know, run the plays and all that kind of stuff. That's what a coach does. The, the coach doesn't go out on the court and play. Right? The, court, the coach doesn't go out there and play. The coach, when, when game time comes, the coach, the coach stays on the sidelines. He stays on the bench and lets the players play. That's how that works. And that's really what we're being told here. That's what we're being told in this passage. Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers to the church, not to play the game, but to get the church ready to play the game. That's what chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 are saying. Now, all of that makes us say, what's the game? What do you mean play the game? What game are we talking about here? The game is step three in the process. Uh, step three is believers serve each other. And that's what you see here in this passage. And so Jesus gives leaders, they would be the gift here. Jesus gives leaders, leaders equip believers, believers serve each other. Let me read the whole sentence now from verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. Equip them for what, Paul? 
for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. You might remember one of the better-known verses in Ephesians. It's Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's what Paul says. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's what he's talking about in chapter 4, verse 12. Those verses are not in isolation from each other. I think he goes back to that idea. And so what's the game? The game is the good works that God created us in Christ Jesus to do. And so the, the leaders are equipping the believers to do what? To serve each other. And that really is the emphasis here in this Ephesians 4 passage. They're, they're, they're serving each other for the work of the ministry, he says, and for building up the body of Christ. And you could treat those as two separate things, but grammatically, it's, uh, it's, it's parallelism. Basically, the second one defines the first. So when he says uh, he equips the saints, they equip the saints for the work of ministry, what work of ministry? The building up of the body of Christ. That's what's, what's going on there. And so let me, let me, let's think for a moment about service. We talk about service. We talk about you know, Christians, the church, we serve. Uh, a lot of times we'll talk about serving people outside of the church. Right? We'll talk about serving the poor, or serving the needy, and people who don't know Jesus yet. We'll talk about that kind of going down and working in the food pantry, maybe, something like that. Um, that is absolutely true. We're told to do that in Scripture, but not in this passage. In this passage, the emphasis is on believers serving each other because it's building up the body. Right? It's not building up the community. It's building up uh, the, the, the outside community. It's building up the body of Christ. And so how do we grow in spiritual maturity? We build each other up in spiritual maturity. That's God's process. That's how it happens. That's how you grow and all all of us grow, including me. This is how we grow in in maturity. We help each other grow in maturity. That's what those first uh, five or six verses are saying. And so what's the work of the ministry? Let's make this real practical. What are we talking about? What builds people up in maturity? Well, it's all the stuff we talk about, right? I did it for five minutes at the beginning of the service. It's, your bulletin is filled with it today. It's all those ministries of the church that help people grow, right? And so it's the encouragement and the teaching and the leading in worship. Uh, if you teach Sunday school or you serve at Awana or you help with the family meal on Wednesday night, uh, if you're visiting the sick, if you're part of a prayer ministry, if you're leading a Bible study, all of these are things that we do to build each other up. It's the work of the ministry for building up of the body of Christ. That's what he's talking about there. Uh, some some uh, Christians, some churches Uh, make a mistake that this passage corrects. The mistake is that they think the hired staff are responsible for all those things. That's a common misunderstanding. You know, I don't have to visit a sick person. That's the pastor's job. Not according to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, yes, the pastor will certainly visit sick people. I I visit sick people, I assure you. Uh, I'm a believer too, right? When I go visit people who are sick, I'm doing it it's, it's kind of in my functional job description, but it's not actually in my biblical job description. 
My biblical job description is to equip you so you can go visit the sick and you can share your faith and you can teach the small groups and you can do all those things. That's what's going on here in this passage. Uh, the, the, and, and, and then a lot more people get, a lot more sick people get visited. Do you see how that works? If you're just going to depend on, and, and I don't think we do bad with this, so I'm not scolding, please. I just want us to understand. If any church expects like the one or two or three hired pastors to do that ministry, very few people are going to get visited because they're there's only one or two or three of those, those staff people. But when we all understand that it's all of our job, lots and lots of building up of the body happens because we're all doing it together. So that's God's process. That's his spiritual maturity process. It's not contingent on, on one person or one staff team. It's contingent on all of us being equipped and then helping each other grow in these, in these areas. So what's the process? Jesus gives leaders, leaders equip believers, believers, all of us together serve each other for the building up of the body. Now let's switch gears and, and look at the other issue this passage addresses. And the, and the other issue has to do with uh, the product, I'm calling it, the product of, of, of spiritual maturity. Basically, how do we know we're hitting the target? So, okay, spiritual maturity, we're, we're trying to get there, and you'll see it, especially in the, the back half of this passage, different words that talk about maturity, grow gets used, build up is, is another one that's used, we've already looked at it. These are all terms, biblical terms for maturity. So how do we know we're hitting it? You know, what does it mean? What does it mean to be spiritually mature? Uh, we've got four verses in front of us to help us answer that question. Verses 13 through 16. So it's only four verses, so we do not have a comprehensive picture of spiritual maturity here. But we do have, tied to this process, we have three kind of key areas three key areas, and there's a lot of material here, and I, I did my best to synthesize it to make it easier for us to wrap our arms around. I, I want to show you three key areas that I think are all marks of maturity. So if I want to ask about myself, am I growing in maturity? Or if we want to ask about our church, are we growing in maturity? We can look for these three things. If we see these three things, we can say, yes, we're growing. And to the extent that we see them, we can say, yes, we, we're growing in these three things. They're not the only three, but they're the ones in this passage. So let me, let me show you what they are. The product of maturity. Here's what maturity looks like in today's passage. First, uh, it looks like unity. We are growing in unity. If we're growing, we are growing in spiritual maturity if we can look and we can see growth in the area of unity. And, and that's what verse 13. So uh, I could make four different points out of verse 13, but I was trying to, you know, make a, a sermon we could all follow along with. And as I was looking at verse 13, I think the theme in verse 13 is unity. In fact, the word is, a, is, is directly used. Here's four things that are, are, have to do with unity. So he says, until, so, so this equipping is going to go on, and believers will be building each other up until these things happen. And that's really verses 13 through 16. So this equipping, the purpose of this, this equipping is to bring about these, these things. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the unity, the concept is repeated, the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So you got four angles on unity. So, so think about unity. Four things he says about unity in one little verse. <laughs> the first is he talks about unity of the faith. Right? So we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's the first one he says there in verse 13. We talked about it last week. I'm not actually going to 
go any more into that one. But when we talked about that common faith from last week, same Lord, same God, same body, all that that he talked about in verses 4, 5, and 6. So that's one aspect of unity. We are growing together in our common understanding of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, Number two, we're united by our knowledge of the Son of God. See where he says that. So unity of the, of the faith and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. I think what he's talking about there is our, our personal commitment to Jesus. I think that's what that is. I don't think that's head knowledge. That's personal, relational knowledge centered on the person of Jesus Christ. And so here's what that means in terms of unity. It means that Jesus is the one who unites us. And this is really important, I think, in the American church when we're kind of a little scattered these days. We think we're united by, you know, traditions, right? There are, there are whole denominations, whole groups that are, we're united by traditions or we're united by a building, right? Have you ever known a congregation that that's what they think holds them together? My great, great, great grandfather built this church, and so we're going to go here, right? And I don't care if there's just six of us left. This is our church. And they're united around a building or, or they're united around politics. I think this is why there's been kind of some convulsions of dysfunction in the American church lately. You know, congregations think they're supposed to be united around politics, right? right? If, we all, if we don't all vote for the same person, you need to get out and go to find yourself a church where you do vote for, for, the, for, the, for the same people. Scripturally, that is not, none of those are what are supposed to unite us. What we're united by is Jesus, the person of Jesus. And so we are, we are building each other up in maturity so that we attain to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what's supposed to, to, to unify us. So we have same, uh, same, that common doctrine. We have our commitment to Jesus. The third one you see in verse 13 is this sense of belonging to this new race of people that Jesus is creating. So I don't know if you remember, we talked about that. I mentioned it last week. We talked about it at length last fall when we looked at chapter 2. But uh, Ephesians chapter 2 has this key verse that says we're all one new man, right? So remember Ephesians 2.15, Jesus is creating in himself one new man, one new humanity. And that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 13. So when he talks about mature manhood, Um, you'd be better off translating that as complete manhood. It's the same concept. Um, Because mature manhood kind of insinuates, well, for one thing, where does it leave the women? Um, So why mature manhood? But really, it almost, even to me as a man, it kind of suggests, like, what are we talking about? My gray hair? Or are we talking about kind of acting more responsible? What do you mean mature manhood? What he's talking about is... um, completely entering into an increasing measure that that one new humanity that's the man that he's talking about here when he says manhood he's talking about that one new race and so we're not divided by all those things that divide human people we're not divided by ethnicities we're not divided by um, our, our socioeconomic position we're not divided by all that stuff why because we're in christ we're in this one new manhood and so we're growing in that so If you want to look for maturity, look for a church where people aren't letting the petty little things that other people let them divide, where we're not letting those things divide us. That would be what what it comes down to as far as that goes. A church that is not divided, like you could look, I could tell you who I voted for, and you could tell me who you voted for, and it was a different person, and we'd be okay with that. (laughs) That would be a mark of of a church that was growing in, in maturity. 
And then the fourth one you have in verse 13, again, this is all under unity, is Christ-likeness. So what else are we united by? We are united by a common commitment to a shared goal to become more and more like Jesus. And, and that's what you see that in verse 13. Uh, there at the end, uh, we are all, um, we're being built up until we attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And really what that's, ta- what that's talking about is Christ-likeness. We're becoming more like Jesus. That's what that phrase means. And so that's our goal. And no matter what we do vocationally or where we're from or any of the rest of that, every one of us in this room and online should have as our common goal the desire to become more and more and more like Jesus. And, and so I, I, you know, I was thinking about this. So many times we fixate on people, but people are not the goal, right? Your goal is not to become more like John Piper or more like, uh, you know, I don't know, Matt Chandler or Jenny, uh, what's her name, Jenny Allen or Nancy Lee DeMoss or any of these, these wonderful people, heroic, you know, good Bible teachers, all the rest. But our goal is not to become like those people. Our goal is to become like Jesus. And that unites us, right? And so you don't get that whole thing in Corinthians where Paul talks about, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. He's like, no, we all follow Jesus. And so that's unity when you see that. So, so really what you get in today's passage, we talked about unity last week, I know, and, and what you get here is we're really filling in what, what it means to be unified. Unified Unity is not just that we all think the same thing and we dress similar on a Sunday morning. Unity is much richer and deeper and, and fuller than, than that kind of picture. So unity, we're growing in unity. Uh, number two, the second area in this passage where we're, if you want to know if we're growing in maturity, look for this, is that we're growing in stability. Stability. We know we're growing in spiritual maturity when we can look and we see that we're growing in stability, both corporately and, and individually as well. This is the one he talks about in verse 14. And so verse 14, and let me just say grammatically, it, this reaches back to that verse 12. So when I diagrammed this passage this week, I I think verse 14 connects back to that equipping. So equipping the saints to do what? So that they'll build each other up in what? In verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And so this spiritual maturity, this building up of the body as we build each other up, more and more will be stable, is, is what you get in verse 14. And there are two kinds of stability, I think, that, that he highlights here. Um, the first is just that personal stability, right? So when we talk about maturity, uh, it's that personal maturity, personal stability. You see this with the picture of children. We'll no longer be like children, right? I mean, children, you know, bless, I mean, you know, I know there's children here. I mean, but children, when we're children, we, we, we melt down a little easier, uh, you know, you, you, you know, you go through the cereal aisle. I want frosted flakes. No, we're not going to get frosted flakes this week. It's the end of the world, right? I mean, that's kind of a child's approach to the world. Um, maybe I feel that way too when we don't get spirit. But, uh, but, but you, 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 you see what I mean? There's an immaturity, an instability that goes with the immaturity of childness. He says, we're going to leave that behind. And so as we're growing in maturity, as we're growing in Christ, we, we become stable people. So just think of examples. Uh, you know, think of someone who struggles perhaps with, with his temper, right? So someone who struggles with his temper, uh, but as he grows in Christ-likeness, he learns patience, he learns self-discipline, he learns gentleness as the Holy Spirit is giving birth to this in, in his soul. And so 
he becomes more stable. He doesn't fly off the handle when something doesn't go his way, like maybe he did much earlier in his life, in his Christian walk. Or, um, you know, maybe think of, you know, even procrastination, which is you know, relatively harmless, but still, you know, maybe not a, a, a good character quality. And so if, if we're tempted to procrastinate, but then we grow in self-discipline, we grow in kind of thoughtfulness of other people, that tendency to procrastinate will, will shrink as godly virtues overcome it. And so there's this personal stability that comes from, from growing in maturity, right? So, so there's that part. The one Paul emphasizes more, though, in verse 14, is doctrinal stability. And that's really the one he's, he's more focused on. He switches his metaphors. He goes from a child growing up to a, a boat. I think that's the picture, a boat uh, on the, on the, on, in a storm, right? A boat in a storm. And, and he had basically immature Christians, immature churches are like boats caught in a theological hurricane. Right? There you have it. You know, they're, they're tossed about by uh, the latest TV preacher and internet rumors and conspiracy theories. And, and, and these things just bat them around. And whatever the latest one is, they just buy it, hunk, line, and sinker. And the problem is they don't know what they believe. And so they'll believe anything. That, that's the picture in verse 14. When we're not growing in maturity, sitting under the, under the word, then we, we become uh, naive, um, gullible, and we buy into anything. We're like a boat tossed about in a hurricane. And so if you want to know if you're growing in spiritual maturity, if you yourself are, uh, if, you're, if your church is, look to see if the doctrine, and I'm using that word in its broader sense, not just kind of your statement of faith, but the things that are believed. Check to see if your beliefs are stable. Right? Do, do, do we believe what the Bible says? Or are we chasing after all sorts of other stuff that has really nothing to do with the Bible. That's, that's the test there in, in verse 14. So are we growing in stability, especially doctrinal stability? Finally, the, the third area in this passage that where, we're, we'll be, where, where we will see growth happening is in community. So here we are talking about community again. Uh, we know we're growing in spiritual maturity when we are growing in uh, biblical community. And that, to me, is the unifying theme of the last two verses, verses 15 and 16. Uh, there's a lot in those verses, uh, but when you look at them closely, everything he says has some aspect of community, kind of our relationships with each other. And so uh, let me just show you what I mean. Verse, uh, let me just read the verses again. And there are basically three things I want to say about community in these two verses. Um, he says, rather speaking the truth in love. And so this is going to be another product of that building each other up that he talks about way back in verse 12. We will be speaking the truth in love. Uh, we are to grow up. There's one of your mature words. We will grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, what happens? It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. It builds itself up in, in love. So three things those two verses say about community, growing in community. First, uh, growing in community, if you say, are we growing in community? Well, look to see if we are speaking the truth in love. Are we speaking the truth in love? Uh, and so he, he moves from that kind of being tossed about by false, by false doctrine, verse 14. So you see the direct connection, right? We don't want to be tossed about like, you know, a boat on a hurricane by false doctrines. Uh, instead, we, we're truth people. We're going to speak the truth, he says, but we're going to do it in love. 
So we're going to speak the truth in love. We're going to say true things to each other, but we're going to do it in a way that's motivated by love. Not kind of a false syrupy kind of, you know, the sandwich thing where I say a nice thing and then I say the mean thing I want to say and then another nice thing. But, but, but real genuine motivated by, by genuine love so that people feel loved even as we're saying the hard thing to them. Where truth love people. That's one of the things you look for. I, um, I saw one of those uh, memes on, uh, I don't remember where I even was, but probably Facebook, but I saw this uh, meme the other day, had kind of a pretty picture, and then a saying over the, the picture, and the saying said, Jesus does not call us to be right, he calls us to be loving. And, and you, you see that, and you go, yeah, that's right. Jesus doesn't call us to be right, he calls us to be loving. It's not true, though. <laughs> it's not actually true. It sounds good, but it's wrong, because what you actually see in the Bible is he calls us to be both. It's not an either-or. It's one of the mistakes we're making these days, is we make it an either-or. We can either be truthful, or we can be loving. No, Jesus says you be both. Be, speak the truth in love. And the emphasis, it's, it's funny, the emphasis, again, in this passage is on doing this into each other's lives. And so a lot of times we take that, and we're talking about you know going you know, interrupting some rally or something where people are promoting some kind of sinful behavior or something. This verse isn't about how we treat outsiders. We should be loving. I think the principle would, would apply to outsiders, but it's actually applying to us within the church. And so you should be able to say hard things to me, and I should be able to say hard things to you. And we should be able to do that, not just because we want to say hard things, but because it's going to help each of us grow in maturity in Christ, to grow in Jesus. And there should be enough love there, because we're living in community with each other, that we're not actually hurting each other, we're actually helping each other. That's the biblical vision. Now, I know that's hard to do, I, I know, but, but that's the biblical vision that's put here before us. So speaking truth in love. Second thing that you see in those verses uh, is that we understand we're all under authority. Right? And that really is very much a check here on that idea of the gifts, those leadership gifts from verse 11. We are all, every single one of us, under the authority of Jesus. Jesus is the head, we're the body. And a body, we actually talked about this last week, a body lives in community, right? My, my two hands are in community with each other, even though they're on opposite ends of the, of the, of the wingspan here. Uh, but they live in community, they work together, they depend on each other. If this one hurts, this one's going to suffer. Uh, we, we li- a body is a picture of community, but this community is all under the head. It's all under the headship of Jesus Christ. And so if you want to see as a church growing in community and maturing in this area of community, you know, just look and see, do we understand that? Or is there, is there a lot of infighting? Is there, are there power struggles? Are people wrestling with, you know, who, who does what and who gets where and all this kind of thing? Or, or is there a, a strong sense of mutual submission to each other, which is what um, that would be talking about there in that picture of the body. And so you have um, that idea of, uh, of being under authority and then the last one, and it's where the passage ends, is this idea of building itself up. The body builds itself up. And so really, it just circles back to that verse 12. Is, is what I described in verses 11 and 12, is that happening? If you want to see if, there's, if, if a church is growing in community, is it happening? Are the people serving each other? Are they helping each other? Are they teaching each other? And they are. If you look at, you know, if you look at that list of small groups, I don't lead one, do I? I could, I would, I have other times in the past, but I don't. Why? Because the body's teaching it's, it's each other. And so you see that growing maturity, right? You see it happening. It's happening just the way it's, it's supposed to. And so that's another one. So the body, we're not, it's not just, you know, community is, and you guys know this, right? But community is so much more than donuts and coffee. 
right? And I, I like donuts and coffee. They're, they're some of my favorites. But, but community is not just donuts and coffee. And, and, you know, how did you like, what did you think about yesterday's game? A community is, is the body building itself up in maturity as each one does his or her part, and we all together grow in Jesus Christ. That's the biblical vision here for how we grow in spiritual maturity. Some time ago, I was um, <clears throat> reading on this subject. I was reading an article on spiritual maturity, and, and the author of the article told a little story about his, an experience he had to make a point that I'd like to close with. Uh, he told how he was driving on a, a family trip, and they were actually down in Florida. So I think they were starting in Florida. And he was kind of doing that thing. Maybe you've done this if you've ever taken a long road trip. He was kind of doing that thing where they wanted to cover lots of miles in one day, so they got a really early start. So he kind of like threw the, all the kids into the back of the van or whatever it was at like 5 a.m., that kind of thing. And they, he wanted to make a, get a couple of hours under their belt before they had breakfast. And so he, they were driving very early in the morning. Everybody else is asleep in the car. He's driving. And, and he described how he was, the part of Florida he was driving through was the part where there's lots and lots of orange trees. It was just very agricultural. And so I looked to the right, just miles of orange trees. Look to the that's the left. Look to the right. There's all these orange trees everywhere for miles and miles and miles. He said, just nothing but orange trees. And uh, it kind of made him hungry. And so uh, he pulled over. It, was, you know, it had been enough time. He pulled over. He found this diner, and uh, everybody got out. They went into the diner and started ordering their breakfast. And uh, I don't know, maybe it was all the orange trees, but when the woman asked him what he wanted to drink, he said, I'll have some orange juice, please. You know, nice, tall glass of fresh, squeezed Florida orange juice. I mean, I mean, I've been driving by all these groves. Get me some orange juice. Uh, however, he was shocked. The waitress said, I'm sorry, I can't bring you any orange juice. Our juice machine is broken. The juicer machine is broken. Uh, at first, I was dumbfounded, he said. I'm going to quote him now. Uh, we were surrounded by literally millions of oranges. I knew they were there. I'd just seen them on the highway. And I knew they had oranges in the kitchen, too, because they'd garnished our plates with, with, uh, with oranges. There were orange slices on the table. And so I knew they had oranges. The problem was they didn't have oranges. The problem was that they depended on a machine to get orange juice. And their machine was broken. A lot of people these days like to, uh, to debate. I don't know how many of you... From, you, you see this. You see this in things you read. Uh, a lot of people are debating now why the American church is so immature. It's kind of the debate du jour. I see it all the time. You know, why is the American church churning out so many immature Christians? That's the question. And, and I'm sure it's a complicated answer. It's more complicated than most people want to make it. But I think part of it is what we've talked about today. Part of it is that our machine is broken. We're trying to make disciples. We're trying to help people grow in their spiritual maturity in ways that the Bible does not say to do, right? And so we, we try to make it merely programmatic, for example, and we don't actually invest in each other's lives. Or, or we aim at, we're just aiming at the wrong targets. We're aiming at numbers, right? So many churches just, what, what's the, you know, the, the, the dollars, you know, the, the butts and the bucks right? the, in the chairs. Uh, they aim at numbers. They aim at influence. You know, how much does the world respect us? What's our credibility? What, is, what do they think of us? We're aiming at the wrong things when what God says we should be aiming at is spiritual maturity. We should be building each other up in the faith. That's what it looks like here in Ephesians 4, to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I pray you would help us to do that here. 
Uh, help us to be a church. Not that we, we're not talking about abdicating from cultural influence, and we certainly know we're to be about preaching the gospel, but uh, Lord, help us to be a church that is building each other up, where each one of us is doing our part for the glory of Jesus Christ, and we are all together growing in maturity in you, Lord. And we, you know, I want to pray that for the other churches in our area, that, that, you, that the, those who, who understand this with us will be doing it all the better, and those that don't see it, that you'd show them uh, that the, the broader body of Christ here in, in, in Atlantic and Cass County and the surrounding counties would be growing in our maturity, that we might shine brightly uh, in, a, in, a, in a dark sky uh, as bright stars, Lord. And would you be doing that in us and through us? Thank you, Lord. And uh, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.